Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this very exciting episode of Joanna and the Maestro. And I'm only saying that because this particular episode might go on for 15 or 16 hours because <laughs> there seems to be... And that's not an saying obsession. other music. An obs- it's kind of obsessive because I think a lot of people, I can hear them all over the country putting their hands up. We're talking about film music, the music that accompanies or is completely memorable or seems to identify films. Can you remember, Stevie, what... Well, you've, you're very musical, so you would have noticed that early, but what film first caught you where the music just stood out? I remember it incredibly well. It was Saturday afternoons, black and white movies. And they were all older movies or, or epics. God, I love the epics. But I loved, I loved the black and whites. Um, Casablanca. And I remember seeing Errol Flynn in The Seahawk. And I'm afraid I am a bit obsessed by the way directors and composers put music together. I know I'm extremely irritating because actually when I'm watching a film, music can kill it for me Mm. because it becomes too present. And what thrills me most and always has done is the way that great film music actually adds detail that you might not see. And later on we can talk about um, Sergio Leone and Morricone where there's hardly any dialogue at all. And Leone trusted Morricone to fill in acres of time. So the way music affects the way you see a film is is very profound and incredibly skillful. I know that one of your great heroes is Korngold. Tell me about <laughs> him. Was he, he sounds German, but he wasn't. He was German, Jewish, and in America. Hollywood attracted a huge number of wonderfully talented composers, most of whom really were emigres from Europe with Jewish heritage, Jewish families. Miklos Rosha from Hungary, Korngold, born in Austria, and Max Steiner, who was also Austrian, um, who wrote the music for Casablanca, and now Voyager. And what you had then in Hollywood's bank, their department, Andre Previn writes about this, because he too started in the, I can't remember which studio, but in the music department where composers were working at desks around one room, stacked with manuscript paper. And there they were scribbling away all next to each other. And the machine was huge. So having these wonderful composers with the most huge organization, what I mean is they had their own orchestras. They had their own music studios. And the orchestras were, unbelievably good. So the composers could write anything and they would conduct their own scores as well. It's interesting because films, as you say, the music can make or break a film or indeed be so 
unimportant as to just wash past you, and it's just sound, it's just sort of textural sound, which has become very popular in almost all television programmes where there's a terror of hearing just silence or the, the natural world. They feel that they have to put on something in the background because people have got used to hearing music all the time. But in films, it seems that the music, when you hear the opening bars of anything like Jaws or anything like that, the second it starts with the music, the hairs on your head stand up because you know kind of what you're going to get, which is going to be fantastic. Yes, that opening crescendo is unforgettable. Those two notes. Oh, God. Those menacing stabs, all the dissonances. It all comes together to create a horrible feeling of unease and danger. film has to have a theme at the beginning of it that takes you straight into the right world. But here's something really interesting, in that I'm in love with film music that knows when not to be playing, i.e. it is the drama you're watching, it's what you're watching that is the story. And so Bernard Hamann, for example, in Psycho, you're not prepared. You're not prepared because it's in silence. It's in dialogue. And all of a sudden, the violins start screeching stab, in, stab, in stab. the shower. Yeah. It's when not to have music that's important. And then how to feed in. If you remember all the old romantic black and white films, the music that was accompanying a love scene did not start prior to the moment on stage when you think something is happening or on screen. It feeds in at the moment when you can feel what the director wants to show you. And it enlarges, enriches. At the Royal Albert Hall, people are, you know, they have huge concerts of kind of film music and they'll play the music, from John Barry's music from out of Africa or whatever it might be. Um, and the audience sits there, partly, I think, remembering the film. Yeah. What it does is it brings Star Wars or whatever it is right back into your head. And so you, you love it. And I think that what we're probably not going to talk about today is the songs that emerge from films which become very popular. No, that's completely That's separate. a completely different thing. But the music that, for instance, throbs through me and is always there is in The Third Man. Tell me the story of um, <laughs> Anton Karras, the great zither player, who was found... Who was it? Who was the director? Carol Reed. Carol Reed. Carol Reed. I believe the story is that um, Orson Welles spotted Karras in Vienna, heard him, and uh, immediately told Carol Reed that this was what the music for the film was going to be. And the extraordinary thing is that it seems so clever. 
because it was recorded with Anton Karras's zither on Carol Reed's dining table. No. And Carol Reed described it as dirty music. It had a dirty feeling, which he thought really encapsulated. It's got a street corner um, feeling. Post-war Vienna. Yes, and yet it's not. It's it's got a sound that isn't quite Viennese either. No, but it, well, because of course it's got Hungarian gypsy undertones, but also it it, it has a sort of operetta-ish lehar from a previous time. Vienna in its pomp, and some of the the melodic twists and turns vaguely bring to mind Johann Strauss. It's got a lilt to it at the same time as having a, a, a light-footed feeling. And it was a, the zither was not a very well-known or often-used instrument, was a it? A lot in folk music. It's it, a yeah, very, on very, for films, very I mean, for old... films. It, no, had, a, it no. had a completely distinct sound to it. So as soon as you hear that, you can see Vienna in ruins after the war and the... I'm Black fascinated. I'm fascinated though because the, you, by the zither in in this in in the third man, and what's more, Ennio Morricone uses it in Once Upon a Time in the West. Yes, for the love music, and it's got exactly the same feeling. Now this is the point really because all of those composers were coming out of the great Western European Romantic period. So Strauss had been writing tone poems and creating sounds that no one else had really done before. Romantic sounds. Strauss is full of romance. So all of these composers had at their disposal everything in terms of size of orchestras, orchestral colour, harmonies. Um, Wagner had done his trick of making progressions through chords that were completely new and broke the, the mould of classical harmony. All of those guys, with the first flush of glorious movies, when all the studios were flying high and everybody was going out to see them, had at their disposal the full romantic palette. And at the other end of that would be the film, the light comedy Genevieve, which was, I think, of the 50s or early 60s, which had Larry Adler's mouth organ music. And as soon as you hear it, because it's quite, it's amusant, it's quite amusing, immediately the instrument itself is quite kind of cute. And it's about these jalopies driving down from the London to Brighton car race. And it's exactly the right tone because it's, it's, it's music. As soon as you hear it, it's kind of Genevieve, which is the name of the car. It's kind of Genevieve's theme song. So the, um, the comedy takes place, but as soon as they're driving, you hear this lovely squeaky kind of mouth organy sound. It's so distinctive that as soon as you hear it, you'd go, oh, that's Genevieve. Distinctive, that's the word, isn't it? Because I've, I, I've got a huge list in my mind of films that presented 
sounds that you you really wouldn't believe were possible or had a place. For example, Morricone's um, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, you know. Literally, uh, listeners, I just have to tell you, if I even made that sound, Steve would shoot in and go, is it on, is it on? <laughs> you must have seen that 122 times. Uh, Whenever yeah. those films come on, I'm there you are again. You're Sergio Leone and Morricone. <laughs> You you don't even mind that the actors are dubbed or anything like but that. But it is that wild, yeah. wild sort of hooting call. Yeah. And Morricone uses voices for it and screaming for it. his imagination and of course that sums up the wildness of Mr Wallach and the badness of Lee Van Cleef and there's also a very straightforward feeling for Clint Eastwood the good with the cheroot and he does it again with Once Upon a Time in the West and the whole story revolves around a boy on top of his brother being hung by Henry Fonda And when the boy holding his brother up falls because the sun is so hot and his brother is killed, he then spends the rest of his life tracing Henry Fonda down and he's called the harmonica player. This is Charles Bronson. And you don't find out what the relevance of the harmonica is, which is in the music as well. The the weirdest intervals that haunt you all the way through the film. You don't actually find out the relevance of the harmonica until the last moments when he places the harmonica in Henry Fonda's mouth as he's dying, which is what Henry Fonda had done to the brother who died from hanging. He'd put the harmonica, so the dying breath was these harmonica notes. Just to remind you, if you want to get in touch with us on the programme, do email hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'd love to hear from you. We really would. We're fed up with the sound of our own voices and we just want to hear your sweet voices. Well, obviously, I'll be reading them out, so it'll be my voice again. But all the problems and ideas and compliments and, and questions you have, I shall put to the maestro himself, maestro Stephen Barlow. I want you now just to give me a kind of rapid list. Just read me lists of film music or f- films that really struck you as well, having. Do you fantastic. remember Ben Hur and King of Kings? Yes, I, of do you remember these old epics? I do. <laughs> Extraordinary music, and it's now a stereotypical sound of huge marching troops and bravery and heroism. As your eyes light up, Stevie, I can tell you're thinking of the epic finale to El Cid by Miklos <laughs> Rosa who travelled and researched extensively for a film which was all about the 11th century Castilian warlords. And the soundtrack is just a die for. Huge orchestras and grandeur, Mm. grandeur, grandeur. (laughs) 
What else springs to mind besides Elseed? Corngold's Seahawk, which... Errol Flynn was that? Yes, that's yeah. Errol Flynn. I've done this myself. I've played the Corngold Seahawk suite. Uh, orchestras love it. It's incredibly flashy with fanfares and in the space of one bar in the film, you suddenly go to exactly to seeing the boat on the sea. And Corngold changes it in one bar to flowing, melodic, uh, wonderfully romantic sounds and then finds a way as the real film is about to begin and the credits have, you know, the introductory credits have wound out, gently moves into the story and the music stops. simple. They, they, they made it seem so straightforward. I love Tara's theme, but of course, when I've heard it since then, this is from Gone with the Wind and seeing it as quite a young child, when the story was not as problematic as it is today, which is about civil war in America and the Deep South and the whole problem of slavery now underrunning it. So it's hard to see it as the great romantic novel that Margaret Mitchell had such success with. But Tara's theme, when I've heard it again, it's really da dee da 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 dee da da and that's all about it. And then you go, and then you go, dee da 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 ba dee da da and then you go, oh, okay, oh, that's lovely. Should we, how does it go? And it goes, oh, dee da okay, oh, it's the same again. Oh, okay, pretty lovely, I kind of remember that. And then later on the film, yes, Tara's theme, oh, it's la dee da it hasn't even changed. But it's nevertheless terribly affecting because you know as soon as that music comes, it's Tara, the great homeland, that gorgeous antebellum house where everything was safe and happiness and her old pa lived and Scarlett O'Hara would return and everything would be all right. Tomorrow is another day, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's a beautiful hook. It's a hook. It's a hook. Um, and what a four-bar melody, really. Yeah, well um, done them. But spot on the mark. Yeah. Big big landscapes, big issues, um, John Barry and wrote big, big, but John, When you think of landscapes, you immediately say things like Dances with Wolves or Out of Africa, huge, huge things. John Barry always manages to kind of grab exactly the right feeling for those countries. It's an interesting story, isn't it, how John Barry began his career... I can't remember who the director or producer was, but after Dr. No, when Monty Norman had indeed composed the, the jangling, um, he had in fact wrote that, written that. They commissioned John Barry to come in for the next film, and I can't remember which one it was. And he then did the arrangement of the James Bond tune which is sensational. Oh, it hasn't been bettered. It's big band. Um, and then it's quite sleazy. It's got, yeah, it's got a kind of quite a sort of scout. It's fabulous. That music just makes you think James Bond. Mm -hmm. 
James Bond was huge, and that music was sensational. Oh, grand. Yes, it, 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 and that started him off, of course. Um, and he's got a very distinctive sound, which you can tell a mile off. You, t- you, you know it from a bar, don't you? You can hear from his instruments yes, or the key he chooses or something. because he's got an absolute obsession with trombones and a certain interval. Yeah. So if you and uh, when I play it, I think people will recognise the sound. Oh, go on, tell me. Mr. Barlow moves with a smile across to the piano. One of his things he can't avoid is is this sound on trombones. You see what I mean? It's got a richness in the bass that. Um, that, it, that it's, it's unavoidably John Barry. Is it very difficult to do terrifically different things? Because all these films were very different and the composers would have to come in. They couldn't just turn up their same old stuff, but everybody's got fingerprints because nobody can do the same. We're all so separate and so individual, that, and particularly as creators, so writers or musicians, artists, have their own fingerprints on everything. Is it very difficult to change horses completely and write for, for instance, a comedy or a chase, a kind of comic chase film, as opposed to something which is an intimate, tiny tragedy set in the last century? Look, I mean, Hitchcock, he turned away from Bernard Herrmann at one point, uh, which upset Herrmann a great deal because he thought he'd still got so much to offer. But Hitchcock was looking for other things. Don't forget, Vertigo and Psycho were quintessentially Hitchcock at his peak. No one was making films like that. That, They were his invention. So you wouldn't expect Hermann to be interested in doing something that wasn't just a little bit interesting and complicated musically. If I play you the vertigo theme, I wonder if you'll you'll recognize it. Do you recognize that? Very much so. Yes, that's complicated. literally is very simply these two chords and when you play it like that you think well yeah that's just two chords but there's a common note which is this and then of course you get on top That's got its foundations in what Wagner and Strauss were doing, which was shifting harmonies around, placing harmonies against each other because of the effect that it had. And that is unsettling. It's called the, the scene of love. It's when um, Jimmy Stewart um, falls in love with the actress who he's seen in the street. Played by Kim Novak. Yes. Yeah. It, and also, even though he's fallen in love, 
we know from that music that it's not going to be a terrifically happy story. It's not going to be lovely. I mean, the title itself is not great, Vertigo. It's but a complicated it, plot. Yes. But that's typical Hitchcock, isn't it? Mm. Do you remember in Psycho, Janet Leigh, you kind of have a little bit of sympathy for, but you're ambivalent, really, because she's stolen all this money. Yeah. It's complicated, and that's a film about terribly disturbing issues. And I think that suited Bernard Herrmann's particular brilliance and perception. I tell you a film I went out and bought the music from immediately was... Zorba the Greek and Zorba's Dance. <laughs> I did. I'm glad because you mentioned that. I think his name is Mikis Theodorakis, who was the, yes. the composer of that. Yes. And everybody, well, if you haven't been to Greece, go to Greece, because there's something about Greece that is in, in all of our bloodstreams. We didn't know we loved Greece until we've been there. We didn't know we could dance like the Greeks until we've seen Zorba's Dance. Until the, the men. The until the, the men. men. Yes, the women dance. sometimes are allowed to shuffle about a bit, but it was largely the men with their arms out and that dipping knee and how the music starts quite solemnly. What is the, what is the instrument? It's called, well, it's bazooki. Bazooki. It's Greek bazooki music. And is which it plucked? It's a, like a guitar. Yes, yes. Like a lute or a guitar of some kind. Yeah, yeah, it's a it, it's a big, um, a, a very agile instrument because they can play extremely fast and it's also got a slightly metallic sound. Um, I think they play it with plectrums as well. I fell in love with bazooka music as because a result of, that, of seeing that film. And I fell in love with Anton Karras and the zither, which is why when I went to boarding school, from the second boarding school I went to, I said, please, could I learn to play the zither and not the piano? And they said, no. So that was the end of that. Do actors and actresses ever, Get to ever, the, no, never. hear the music? No. I'm just thinking about when you're working with a director, you or your colleagues are working with a director on a film, you must know there is going to be music. Is there any element of performing in that way? Or do you simply go ahead and do your best performance and then the music can come along, presumably, in theory, and, and actually ruin what you were thinking? Yes, absolutely. And you never know what the music is. It's very rare. I worked with an excellent writer, a quite extraordinary man called Hugo Blick, and he, I did television shows with him, some short ten, six, ten-minute films straight to yeah, camera. Yeah, I remember. And then two series of a thing called Sensitive Skin. Mm. And Hugo always knew before every scene that he wrote exactly what the music was, and he'd tell you what it was. So he had it in his head, even if you didn't know it. Sometimes he'd bring it along on a tape recorder and play it for you. Not that it would necessarily colour your performance, but so you knew the sound that he would be using, which was extremely generous of him to allow, allow us to do that. But it was also a bit like Putnam, something that he felt was part of the creative process, not something that was clipped on at the end to fill in the gaps. But so until he knew that, but you didn't. Well, no, because he played bits to bits and said, oh, right. in this scene, we'll be this. This will be the back. This is the music right. for this. He had a whole. He had a feeling of the whole film in his head before it was even made. Now, a lot of directors take lots and lots of different shots, lots of different angles, and what you think might be quite an important scene for you. Sometimes he's decided to focus on a different character and cut it all to them, and the scene is much shorter than you thought. And so, what you imagined would be people literally bring out hankies by the shed load at the beauty and. The, simplicity of your acting gone completely gone and then you don't see it and then the music has taken over and you kind of go well there we are which leads me to my next you, next question thing as i'm enjoying questioning you for a oh. change so the difference between theater and going to a cinema 
is that we expect music. It's an odd thing. Yeah. And I know we have more sound control on a film, you know, i.e. you can have a soundtrack going and still hear the dialogue and that you balance everything. Well, those experiences are supposed to be different, aren't they? Yes, they are. And in theatres, quite often you have some music to play you in as the tabs go up, as the curtain goes up. I'm not talking about very modern theatre, but I'm talking about traditional theatre. You might hear some music before it goes it's up. It's quite rare, though, isn't it? Yes, but, and that might be recorded and fades out as the curtain goes up. Yeah. Occasionally, for instance, in Noel Card's um, yeah. plays, almost always there's some sort of a song. And so in Private Life, someday I'll find you. And you, so you, sing, you have a bit of a sing-along. More. But you're only as actor-actors singing it with no accompaniment. Hmm. Um, and those are just little tunes, ditties that Noel Card inserted into his own plays, which he had written, of course. But m- mostly plays don't have music, but musicals do. That's what musicals are for. So they're on, they're theatre productions, but they've got, they are made around music. Film is a collaboration, isn't it, really? Yes. Um, and the element of music, I would like to think, remains as important now as it always was. I'm not sure it's quite as important as it was, because I think we've fallen into a into an area where even... TV news has background music. It's become wallpaper. People seem to require this because without it, they panic. If you just hear the reeds rustling and a bird taking off, people are panic stricken. They don't. They seem to need the guidance of the music. If you're in a train, the music goes. It always does, and it's usually got no aim. It's just a sound. It doesn't have a beginning, middle, or end. It's just background wash. And this is terribly distressing. I does it? I've never really known. Does it irritate you as much as it irritates enormously. me? Enormously. Nothing can irritate me as much as it irritates you because you're literally like a volcano. <laughs> OK, this is one chance you can have. I want you to be able to say it now for people who are listening. I'm the not going to do these programmes anymore no, if listen, you go on like that. This is the bit that always makes you stand up and shout at the television set when somebody says, rising to a crescendo. Now tell me what you hate so much. Look, already. <laughs> a, a crescendo is rising volume. Crescendo is the thing of noise becoming louder. So you can't get to a crescendo. A crescendo is what you use to get somewhere else. So what should they say? Coming to a climax? Or what is, what yes. is it when you get to the Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. okay. Honestly. So that's cleared that up, Barlow. That's cleared that up. We don't have to talk about that again. Okay, what what theme music are we what what piece of music are we going to take? Can we have? Can we have because I love him and because I haven't often chosen the last piece that we want to play out? Can we hear the zither Anton Karras and the theme from the Third Man just to round off this thrilling talk about film music? And of course, I can hear people at home going, "Why didn't you mention? Why didn't you illustrate?" Uh, I know we it's couldn't impossible, do it isn't it? No, I really would love that and 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 because for me Mm. it it sums up an entire world behind it because it comes from old hungary old vienna it comes from the past and at the end of that film we see the relentless approach of the future so this is it anton karras thank you stephen In this episode, you heard the following music. 
Main title and first victim, Jaws. Written and performed by John Williams. The publisher was Universal MCA Music Limited, and the record label was Decca Music Group. Psycho Suite, The Murder, composed by Bernard Herrmann, and performed by the Royal Harmonic Orchestra. The publisher was Sony ATV Melody, and record label was Sony Music Entertainment UK. The Harry Lyme theme from The Fifth Man, written and performed by Anton Karras. The publisher was Chappelle & Co, and the record label was Charlie Records. Genevieve, written and performed by Larry Adler. The publisher was Chappelle Music, and the record label was GRR Music. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, written and performed by Ennio Morricone. The publisher was EMI Music Publishing, and the record label was EMI Music Publishing Italia, SRL. The Man with the Harmonica, from Once Upon a Time in the West, written and performed by Ennio Morricone. The publisher was Sony ATV Harmony UK, and the record label was Universal Music Publishing Recordi, SRL. The Legend and Epilogue from El Cid, composed and conducted by Miklos Rosa. The publisher was All Grand Films, and the record label was Stage Door Records. Main title, From the Seahawk, composed by Eric Wolfgang Korngold and performed by the Moscow Symphony Orchestra. The conductor was William Strongberg, the publisher was Warner Chappelle North America, and the record label was Naxos Rights International. Tara's theme, from Gone with the Wind, written and performed by Max Steiner. It was published by Sony ATV Harmony UK, and the record label was Water Tower Music, as licensee for Turner Entertainment Co. Scene d'Amour from Vertigo, written by Bernard Herrmann, performed by Stephen Barlow. The publisher was Sony ATV Harmony UK. Scene d'Amour from Vertigo, written by Bernard Herrmann. It was performed by Bernard Herrmann, Joel McNeely, and the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. The conductor was John McNeely. The publisher was Sony ATV Harmony UK and record label was Varese Saraband Records. The theme from Zorba the Greek, written and performed by Mikis Theodorakis. It was published by EMI United Partnership and the record label was Cobalt Music, Helladisc SA. Anna Walk Away Alone from The Third Man, written and performed by Anton Karras. The record label was Canal Plus UK. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. <laughs>